Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. They were trying to get people to save $150 a month, and the very best framing turned out to be $5 a day, like a latte a day, right? Because that sort of felt bite-sized to people. It didn't seem so daunting. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Olshan, editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we'll explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're looking at new research by psychologists and behavioral economists that could help us make smarter financial decisions and overcome some of our worst instincts and bad habits. You know, several Nobel Prizes have been awarded for explaining why humans are so terrible with money. We get into too much debt, misjudge risks and opportunities. We buy at the peak and sell just before things turn around. Our mental software seems coded to make us fumble our finances. The subtitle of every work of behavioral economics could be, How Dumb Are You? Let Us Count the Ways. Pioneers in the field like Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler have identified hundreds of cognitive biases that trip us up when it comes to money and life. For instance, how we overvalue what we already have and fear losing money more than we derive pleasure from gaining it. Thaler has argued for policies that exploit our psychological weaknesses to our own advantage. He calls these nudges. If the human mind favors the path of least resistance, nudges like automatically enrolling people in 401ks aim to steer us onto a better course. Financial literacy programs have failed to move the needle much. One study of financial literacy programs in high schools found the classes were responsible for only a 0.1% change in financial behaviors. But nudges seem to work. What can we actually do to improve our own financial behaviors? You know, I've put this question to both Thaler and Kahneman, and their somewhat pessimistic answer was not much. I'm oversimplifying a bit. Thaler says it is possible to self-nudge or snudge one's way to better outcomes. He says we could keep less food in our fridge or deposit money in CDs that have a penalty for early withdrawal. Self-nudging is now getting nudged into the spotlight. Over the past decade, a new generation of researchers has focused much more attention on behavioral change, leading to some encouraging insights. The nudge movement interested researchers in fixing things instead of just identifying systematic errors. Katie Milkman is a behavioral economist at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and host of the podcast Choiceology. Her new book, How to Change, teaches us how to develop strategies to overcome our bad habits. Her book has left me much more optimistic about our capacity to hack our brains to lead better financial lives. Changing any behavior is really hard, and tackling money habits can be as tough as getting ourselves to diet or exercise. There's just so much temptation everywhere. 
What I liked about the book is that there were practical ideas backed up by research. She doesn't make it sound easy, but you get the sense that it's at least doable. There was this sort of movement growing, which was maybe once we recognize that people are flawed and that there are systematic ways in which they make biased decisions, we can construct environments for them to make choices that will lead them towards better options. Milkman's research provides an interesting toolkit of self-nudges that all of us can employ to battle our own unique trouble spots. When you are a policymaker, a manager, a coach, a teacher, you can design an environment where other people are making choices, right? So you can set things up to try to encourage positive decisions, decisions that will be best for everyone in the long run. You could set things up so that by default, all your new employees are enrolled in your retirement savings plan or enrolled in a very good health plan. So then the question is, okay, well, how can I myself improve my own outcomes with the same kinds of insights? And I think the answer is that almost all the tools that work to nudge other people, you can use to change your own decisions. She lays out some practical examples of areas in our lives we can improve by establishing our own nudges or defaults. If you know that what people around you do rubs off on you, you can be strategic about who you spend your time with. Or you could say, you know, what are the things that are the default snacks in my pantry? I'm not going to keep chips and cookies around. Instead, I'm going to have healthy snacks. So once you understand this basic psychology of decision making and what the tools are that can work to change other people's choices, you can also structure your own life. One cool strategy Milkman talks about is using what she calls temptation bundling to create a good habit. In grad school, she tried out this concept on herself by linking something she didn't want to do with something she did. When I was struggling to motivate myself at the end of a long day, I also knew I needed to get exercise, but I was exhausted. All I wanted to do was just curl up on the couch, binge watch TV, read a tempting book. I had no interest in these other things I needed to do, and I realized that was a problem. I needed to get my work done. I needed to stay in shape or else I would lose my mind. So I set a rule, and I said, I'm only allowed to enjoy indulgent entertainment while I'm exercising at the gym. And for me, it ended up being audiobooks. So I was, like, listening to Harry Potter novels. It was amazing how much I wanted to go to the gym at the end of a long day to find out what happened next to Voldemort. I was so engrossed in whatever I was listening to that I didn't even notice the pain of the workout. And then I'd come home energized and ready to dive into my work. Next, Milkman set out to repeat the experiment on other people. She wanted to see if her observations about herself held true for others. I've run a couple of randomized controlled trials showing that when people have the ability to link temptations like audiobooks that they particularly enjoy with exercise. It helps them exercise more regularly. So, Stephanie, you told me you've employed something like this to get yourself to finish writing a chapter of your book. Yeah, to avoid the temptation of being distracted by things like social media. I just set a goal for myself, and I said, you're not allowed to peek at Twitter or look at other distractions on the internet until you write 500 words. So every 500 words, you get to tweet 280 characters. Yeah, right. Something like that. After reading the book, I decided to try to put that into action. So the tasks at work, I really hate doing. Things like doing my expenses. I now said, well, if I listen to music while I do this, it'll make it easier to get through. And I will say it's helped at least a little bit. And this strategy can be applied to lots of areas of your life, whether you want to change your exercise or study habits or even your financial ones. 
It's not something specific to exercise. There's some cool research that was done by Ayelet Fishbach at the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell, where they found that giving kids who are working on math problems in high schools access to snacks and markers and music to sort of make the problems more fun. They persisted for longer on their problem sets, even though teachers were worried that there might be a distraction. The temptations actually worked as a hook to engage them more with the activity. And in my own life, I found lots of ways to temptation bundle. I only let myself listen to favorite podcasts while doing household chores. You can only pick up a snack you really love while on the way to hit the books or meet with a friend to have a glass of wine while you're doing your taxes. There's a lot of different ways that you can temptation bundle to make things that would normally feel painful into more of a pleasure. Temptation bundling can help us with procrastination. But Milkman says sometimes when we're avoiding a task, like doing our taxes or making a budget, it helps to look at what exactly is stopping us. If it's unpleasant to do something and that's the reason you're not doing it versus you're forgetting or it's too much work. So it's really important when it comes to behavior change to figure out what exactly is the obstacle standing in your way. I think we too often look for sort of one-size-fits-all solutions. Another strategy you can use to get something done is called a commitment device. The way it works is you choose to give up a little bit of freedom in order to force yourself to do something. We're really used to other people telling us, I'm going to set up these constraints for you. Your teacher says, you're going to have these deadlines in class. And if you don't hit the deadlines, there's going to be a penalty. Or a government says, here's the speed limit. The most famous example of a commitment device is in Homer's Odyssey. If you remember, the sirens' gorgeous but deadly singing would entice sailors to smash their ships into the rocks. Odysseus really wanted to hear their song, so he had his crew put wax in their ears and then tie him to the mast and promise not to release him no matter how much he begged. Essentially, you're giving up a little bit of freedom and control in order to accomplish your goal. Milkman told us about a commitment device experiment that three economists in the Philippines did as a way to help people save more money. They created a new kind of savings account where you'd put money in, but you would not be allowed to withdraw money until you reached a predetermined savings goal or a predetermined date. Now you don't have access to your assets and you're not getting any benefit from it. You are actually getting exactly the same interest rate on your money as a standard account. But you have said, hey, you know, I don't want access to that money because I might be tempted to dip into it. About a third of customers in the experiment actually preferred not being able to access their money. It prevented them from giving in to the temptation to spend it, and it actually worked. They found that the people with access to this special new kind of account, in addition to a standard one, ended up saving 80% more year over year. I'm actually not surprised that some people would prefer not to be able to access their money. It actually reminds me of my own kids. I've got two teenagers who've been getting allowance for you know, a lot of years, every month they get their allowance. One of them has always wanted the money in cash and the other one tells her father, just put it in the spreadsheet. She doesn't want to hold it. She doesn't want access to it. I won't tell you which one I relate to more. It's really impressive. You know, she's able to say, listen, I would rather just not even think about it. And she saved a bunch of money as a result. And her brother has a lot of video games. It sounds like your daughter would not need an account like the one in the experiment, but your son might. Some people just know, they know themselves, right? They, they know their own limitations. And she is very disciplined. And she's able to say, 
even though I know the money is there and I could spend it anytime I wanted to, I'm just not going to do that. I want to save the money and I set it aside and I try not to think about it. Some people are much more disciplined. You know, my wife, if she's writing a book, will say, I'm not going to get up from my desk until I complete a chapter. I would literally need to be chained to my chair like Odysseus in order to accomplish that. No, but you know, it's like if it starts early, it feels like one of those things that, you know, when you get your first job, if you're lucky enough to have an employer that sets up a 401k or some other vehicle and allows you to start saving and you start doing it at 21, then it just becomes a ritual for you. And even if you change jobs, you're so accustomed to thinking that some amount of money that you earn is supposed to be set aside. And I think it's really hard to think about interrupting a person's spending pattern later in life. But if you can get to people early, it's a lot easier to change those behaviors. You know, Stephanie, when uh, Katie Milkman teaches about this experiment in her classes, all the economic students are baffled that anyone would possibly agree to such an account where they get no financial benefit for not being able to access their money. Yeah, that's because most of us think about having access to money means that you have liquidity. And if you give up liquidity, you're supposed to get a premium for that. So it's really kind of unusual to think that some people would agree to take the same interest rate on funds that they can't access as they would accept on funds that they can access. But I think in a way, they're sort of saying, you know, I'm willing to pay you to save me from myself. Exactly. The irrational option here is the better one. There are probably some things that truly can be on autopilot and where you don't need to build in flexibility. But I would argue a huge fraction of the kinds of things that we're trying to do when it comes to achieving our goals, whether it's eating, healthy meals, or exercising, require repeated attention. Another common strategy is building habits into your daily life which Milkman says can help reduce decision-making. But she also stresses the importance of having some flexibility in your routine. It's helpful to be on autopilot for some things, like brushing your teeth in the morning or remembering your way home from work. But in order to change, you'll need to be paying attention to the decisions you're making in the moment. If it's a thing you want to do most days, total routinization is unlikely to be the best path. We need to have sort of a plan A and also a plan B. And when we're in startup phase trying to build that habit, that we should be experimenting a bit more with different contexts so that we'll be ready to roll with life's punches and do the thing no matter what, instead of only if we face ideal circumstances. In cases where autopilot might help you achieve your goal, Milkman says that's the time to use a self-nudge. Putting in place regular automated choices using something like an app or an online banking feature that takes the decision out of your hands. If you think about self-nudging, there's all these tools, and some of them feel more like just being sophisticated or building habits, and some of them really look like choice architecture and putting it in place in your own life, whether you keep certain things in the pantry or set up an auto-deduct from your paycheck to go straight to a savings account that you keep it completely separate from your other accounts. We can do a lot of things to structure our choice sets differently. Milkman mentions there are actually apps to help you do this, like Stick, where you can create your own commitment device and put real money on the line. So that if you don't accomplish the task by a certain date, you actually have to pay that cash to a charity you hate. It's probably a pretty effective way for some people to accomplish their goals. 
Another thing I find really encouraging is that Milkman says achieving a significant goal doesn't necessarily require a total makeover. When looking at ways to save money, small changes can have a big effect. Or you can reframe a goal by dividing it into smaller, more manageable pieces. An experiment at UCLA showed how well that could work. They were trying to get people to save $150 a month, but they either said, do you want to save $150 a month? Or they said, do you want to save $5 a day? Or do you want to save $35 a week? So they're all exactly the same choice. They're just different framings. And the very best framing turned out to be $5 a day, like a latte a day, right? Because that sort of felt bite-sized to people. It didn't seem so daunting. The latte gets a really bad rap in personal finance. People say, cut back on your latte and you can save all this money. But to Milkman's point, thinking about small amounts like that $5 a day for the coffee, well, it's not going to change your world. It's a useful way to think about the cumulative effect of little things. And anything that gets you started saving is a good thing. It sort of feels like if you can break down these you know, massive goals to an amount that you can wrap your head around, it's much easier to get going. Yeah, so I guess the question is, at what point does a good habit get so ingrained that you never have to think about it again? There is no sort of magic solution where you can build a habit, say, in a month and just sort of take your hands off the steering wheel and thereafter say, you know, I'm done. It's good. I've built it. You need instead things that are maintenance tools. Look, making change is hard. But if you want to create a long-lasting change, you need to take tools like temptation bundling and use them not just for a week or two, but you have to keep using them long term. It is possible to create lasting change. It's just that we can't look at it as like a quick fix. But a lot of the tools that can make change happen, if you keep using them, create lasting change. After the break, we'll meet a financial psychologist who explains how the stories about money we grew up hearing can shape the rest of our financial lives. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. Before the break, behavioral economist Katie Milkman described tools we can use to reshape our money habits. While we think a lot about our habits around money, we may not give much thought to where they come from. We feel so much shame around money. And shame acts like an emotional glue trap and it just keeps you stuck. Psychologist and certified financial planner Brad Klontz works with clients to help identify where their struggles with money originate and how understanding their own stories about money can help untangle their problems. Klontz is one of a growing number of practitioners who has combined elements of psychotherapy with financial advice. They call it financial therapy. The average American is in a terrible financial mess. I mean, it's just the facts. You know, the average American overspends, doesn't save enough for the future. And from my perspective, 
it's not just about financial literacy. It's not just about financial education. I have yet to meet somebody who doesn't know that they should save for the future. Klontz says our inherited perceptions, combined with cultural pressures around us, tell us what we think we know about money. For me, it's entirely a psychological issue. It's all about where you were born, what you were taught, the culture in which we're all swimming around. This has a profound impact on our financial behaviors. So many people have anxiety and hangups about money, and that makes it harder to get to the core of our issues. Confronting what Klontz calls our money script is key to understanding our challenges. If we can examine the story we learned growing up and really get to its source, we can make positive changes. A money script is the term that we use to describe your beliefs around money. And we use the word script because quite often it is like a script in a play that was written for you by your parents, by your great-grandparents, by your entire culture, by the particular experiences of your ethnic group or your religious group, your gender. And for most of us, they're unconscious. All of us carry around the stories about money we learned growing up. Even fictional characters live by money scripts. In Klontz's book, The Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge, he examines the way Charles Dickens's miserable miser rewrites his money scripts with the help of the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, who are essentially his financial therapists. I believe in the past, the present, and the future. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. So how do you know if your money issues are serious enough that you should look for professional help? Klontz says, look at the way your behavior with money affects the rest of your life. A money disorder is a chronic, self-destructive pattern of financial behavior that leads to significant negative consequences in your life. So anxiety, depression, relationship problems. Maybe you're getting in trouble at work because you're so obsessed with shopping that you're doing it at your desk when you should be working or a gambling disorder. These things have a profound impact on your life. And for most people who have a money disorder, they know that they're tripping themselves up. But I think for people who are suffering from those chronic self-defeating financial patterns, a financial therapist is ideal. Even for people whose conflicts with money don't go this far, Klontz says it's perfectly normal to experience some pretty intense emotions around it. Saving, it just goes against our programming. They've done studies on it and it just it hits that dopamine center. It feels so good. It's the hunter-gatherer in us, right? This is how we survived as a species. And so, of course, it's wired in there. Of course, you're going to get some emotional benefit from doing that. I think it's really, really important for you to enjoy spending money. And you don't have to pick one or the other. You should be able to enjoy spending money. You should also get excited about saving money. It's interesting how Klontz turns that idea on its head. Accepting that you enjoy spending money takes the guilt out of the equation when you're trying to change your patterns. Whether we're wired to spend or not, if you want to save, it helps to have as a goal something you're really looking forward to. I am a huge advocate of a spending plan. So I want you to approach it by saying, this is what matters to me, and this is where I'm going to spend my money. Instead of beating ourselves up, Klons wants us to enjoy spending splurge when it's something we really care about, and save up for the things that are meaningful to us. In one study we did, after an hour to an hour and a half of talking about money scripts and of getting people to visualize exactly what it is they want, what we saw is a 40% increase in people saving by doing this one thing, by spending time getting super excited about their savings goals. So harnessing that power of excitement 
that can actually immediately shift your financial behaviors because there's nothing worse than approaching this from deprivation. Brad Klontz and Katie Milkman both agree that the slow and steady approach, incremental, consistent, small steps, is the way to set yourself up for success. These are changes we can all make without overhauling our lives, but over time, they add up to big results. The common thread here is that it is possible to change our financial behaviors and attitudes. That doesn't mean it's easy. It takes a lot of work. We just have to understand where our habits and assumptions come from, and then we really can hack our brains to establish the new patterns we want to adopt. All right, but I'm not giving up my latte. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Coming up in a few weeks, we'll be doing a special mailbag episode where we'll answer your questions. And if you send us your best new idea in money, we might talk about it on the show. Thanks to Katie Milkman and Brad Klontz. To learn more about how to hack your brain to be better with money, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from Market Watch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers. Our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. Alana Myers is our researcher. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. And Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer for Market Watch. And our associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, not part of the Market Watch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.